This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. That is a real company with a funny name. And I'm here with Dan Roth, who's also a funny guy. Hello, a rye guy. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Dan and I used to work together a long time ago. Nearly 20 years ago. That's right. Holy shit, we're old. And now you work at Microsoft. Oh my God, yeah, that's true. Have you thought about that yet? You know, it's been a interesting progression because the deal happened what feels like so long ago now, and we've all been living with, with it for I'm, a long time. I'm doing a terrible podcasting hosting job. I should explain what your actual job is. You work at LinkedIn running their content. You are the content czar at LinkedIn. I'm the executive editor of LinkedIn, so I oversee all of the original content on LinkedIn, the influencer program, which is this group of sort of celebrities of the business world. You're the most powerful people. man in business journalism, I read, when I was Googling you this morning. That was written by your old boss, uh, <laughs> Henry Blodgett. There was nothing better than a business insider headline. It's great. Just, everyone the repeats superlatives it. are awesome, and they get repeated everywhere. The SEO value is – that will be on my tombstone, I think. So we'll talk about all that. Um, but what I was saying was you now work for Microsoft because LinkedIn got bought by Microsoft, and I think the deal just went through like days or weeks ago. That's probably right. week, Probably yeah. by the time you hear this a few weeks ago. So how has life changed for you now, is, now, now that Microsoft is – paying for your salary? So far, there have been no changes. Um, this is, an in, it's been an incredibly smooth process where we started laying out month, as soon as the deal happened, started thinking through what could this be like if and when the merger goes through. And there are some pretty powerful um, opportunities to create. If you've seen any of the, um, you know, Jeff Weiner, our CEO, and Satya Nadella, Microsoft CEO, both wrote posts on LinkedIn about what this could look like. And one of the things they called out was creating the world's largest news desk, the world's largest business news desk. Right. And so from the get-go, right, sometimes when a merger like this happens, they'll say, nothing's going to change, completely autonomous, everyone's going to go ahead and do their job, and obviously something's going to change down the line. But from the get-go, your boss and CEO of Microsoft said, we're going to work together. We're going to figure out ways to import LinkedIn in some capacity to Microsoft. So that meant your job is going to change in some capacity. The way that Jeff put it to us is, I think the the phrasing was was pretty cool, which is think about your, and this is LinkedIn, so we, we tend to speak in very language about how, how great things could be, is is your dreams amplified. All the programs, everything that we're working on, how, do we, how does Microsoft help amplify what we're doing? And... All of the discussions that we've had is how does Microsoft help grow LinkedIn? So the questions are how do we team up with MSN to be able to grow LinkedIn? How do we think about, and so particularly for content, how does, what does content look like in a world where Microsoft's running this massive news portal? And then there's other things. We know that professionals start their day with Microsoft. They open their PC. They look at, they go and search for things. They are in Microsoft Office products all the time. How does the news and the views and the stuff that my team works on how and, and the entire content ecosystem at LinkedIn, how does that play in that world? So you guys have been sort of sketching this out in your head for the luck of the, a deal like this gets announced months ago. Now it's a thing. So do you start working on it immediately? Do you wait for the deal to get done before you start working on it? How's that you have to wait work? for the deal to be done to be able to yeah. launch, to be able to do anything. And noodling in the back of your head. Exactly. But you've got some ideas. Absolutely. But in the meantime, you got to go ahead and do your job. So explain what your job actually is day to day. So I'm the executive editor of LinkedIn, which means I oversee an, an editorial team. We have about 20, almost 25 editors who are around the world, New human York. Human beings. Human beings, human editors. We all have sweatshirts, hoodies that say human editors on them. <laughs> and they are mostly people who come from the business journalism world, Forbes, Fortune, AP, Reuters, Le Figaro, and the role of the editors at LinkedIn is to really focus on high-quality 
content and high quality people? How do we make sure that we get the best stories and the best shares and people weighing in on the most important topics of the day? Because there's a couple of different things going on at LinkedIn on, on the editorial side, right? Average people are just writing stuff and posting it. That's right. And you've got that stuff's automated, right? I submit something and it just sort of goes into the system at some point. And then you guys are also going to Bill Gates and whomever and saying, would you like to write something for us? Are you guys writing your own stories as well or yeah. it's all, all contributors? So we call it the – actually, this is a – this shows you the big jump I've made in since, since leaving traditional media is that I now have an acronym that I use in talking about it. The three Cs we talk about. Mm-hmm. I talk about the. Um, it is create. I just winced a little bit. <laughs> create, cultivate, and curate. By the way, the fact that you wince is that's everyone on my team winces every time I bring that's this good. up. Yeah, it's good. They're still um, human. But they're going to at one point. I'm going to hear someone repeat this. And like, yes, <laughs> that's your victory. You absorb them. <laughs> so the create is there's the editors are supposed to write, shoot videos, be out there talking to people, Q and A. Yeah, you do great some great stories. interviews still. Thank you. And then we curate. So that is looking what you talk about. You, we have 160,000 posts a week being written on LinkedIn. There's 3 million writers. It's by far the world's largest business platform and publisher, if you think about it that way. And that content can either be distributed by algorithms or editors. And so we have a, the system is a editor plus algorithm operation. The algorithms help identify good content. The editors identify good content. What the editors choose helps train the algorithms. The algorithms help the editors make better choices. And so you could see things that are – you can have a member writing a piece about why um, radio traffic reporting jobs are not going to die in the, in the Waze era, which is a super narrow topic. But it could start blowing up and the algorithm's like, hey, editor, can you? this thing seems like it's actually good. Can you check it and out? And you know a lot about the members. So you can say, oh, you might be interested yeah, in exactly. this. Exactly. Are you generating revenue for LinkedIn? What's the purpose of the, your team, the purpose of the work you guys are doing? A lot of people would love to have this platform, but what does it do for LinkedIn, and how do they, how do they measure yeah. what you're doing? So first, I, got, I have to say the last C, which is cultivate. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, and uh, which is the idea of going out and reaching out to people, either individuals or thousands of people at a time, asking them to write and yep. to contribute content. So and I'll get to your I, I I answer your Finish question. the Cs. So what the way that that works is, is you could have – we have certain editors who have specialties. We have a healthcare editor, a finance editor, um, an editor for just for software engineers. And that editor has certain people that he or she will turn to all the time and say like, oh, the Muni system in San Francisco just got hacked. Hey, we, I know you're an expert in protecting you know, systems. Why don't you write a piece about why this thing happened? An, an assignment editor. Exactly. So when we talk about the world's largest news desk, this is what it is. We want to take the insights that are trapped in the heads of professionals everywhere yep. And get them out to the world's professionals. So I get why people would like to write for LinkedIn, yes. right? Because ideally you get lots of distribution. Right. It, it helps buff right up your, your, yeah. your professional reputation. helps the company you work for. What do you guys get out of it? Because you're not selling ads against this stuff, are you? No. Right. Well, there are ads that run on LinkedIn, but we're right. not. That's in, not your business. That's not the main business. If people are, are coming to LinkedIn every day because they have this great information that makes them better at what they do, there's all kinds of benefits to the system. They will update their profiles. They'll start looking for a job that they might be interested in. They will write something that gets someone they work with, their colleague, their boss interested in checking it out. They'll get jobs from it, and then they'll come back to LinkedIn more. Because the value of LinkedIn still is it's for job seekers, it's people who want to hire people. It's it's that network, right? And then there's some advertising based around it. But it's really – it's still a professional network. And the idea is I'm going there fundamentally when I want to connect with someone professionally, usually to hire or get hired. And you want them to be more engaged just generally. That was when I joined LinkedIn five years ago. That is what LinkedIn was, exactly the way you described it. And people would come here to get jobs. Over the years, especially because 
of the content that's flowing through LinkedIn. Now, people will come just to get smarter at what they do. And so we think about get a job, but also get better, get smarter, be more successful. And being more successful doesn't always mean getting a job. It could mean getting, we just, I just heard yesterday from someone who said, I wrote these posts and I got two speaking opportunities. Right, but, or, but for LinkedIn, yeah. the company, the reason that, ben, you just want you just want them more engaged generally. But it, you, put it this way, Facebook wants people engaged so they can eventually show them ads. Right. Right? That's not what LinkedIn does and that's not really where you guys are headed. Well, we will, we'll do two things. We'll do three things. We show them ads. So that's one thing. And so you might say, if someone wants to reach, when people buy ads on LinkedIn, they're buying ads for a specific community. I want to reach software yep. engineers in Minnesota, and they can do that. And we need software engineers from Minnesota to be on LinkedIn, contributing, reading, so that they can see those ads in their feed. They also might want to get jobs. That's part of it. But it's, you know, recruiters make up 60% of our revenue. And so if you are Oracle and you're buying recruiting seats for LinkedIn, you want to have access to all of this LinkedIn data. Right. If you are, let's say that you are, you're hiring um, someone who's just graduating from college and you're looking at all of these, you're a recruiter and you're looking at all of this content, excuse me, all of these resumes essentially, these profiles of people, someone who's written a post or a shared content, you get, the recruiter gets much more information right, about right. that Right, right. So you want me or whomever right. more engaged with what with LinkedIn broadly. Yeah. So when the Oracle recruiter comes in, they've got a better pool of people to look at and they know more about the, that pool and it makes it more valuable to that audience. That's that is one leg of the of of the of the is stool. There another, is there another acronym or there's a stool? No, there's no, that's all I got. There's a stool. You got the one the one <laughs> part of it is the is the recruiter and the second one is ads and then there's subscriptions is the is right. the other big business. Got it. Okay. I'll stop grilling you about the business model. But it is interesting, right? Because it is this really big publishing platform. Right. A lot of people would like to have a publishing platform as big as yours, but it's not Facebook. It's not Twitter. You're doing something different. So I was thinking about sort of how you guys are different than them. One one way that's different, right, is we just passed through an entire election cycle and there was nothing controversial that came out of LinkedIn. There's no fake news there. There's yep. no one yelling racist comments. I'm assuming both candidates probably put something up there at some point. Did, did Trump submit something? Trump never did not come. We had um, Cruz was on there and who else? Rubio, I think, was right. on. And, and so the reason it's we, – we're not reading about fake news on LinkedIn. The reason we don't have to worry about people doing hate speech on LinkedIn right. is what? Just the people – it's a professional network, people are using their real names? That's a big one is that this is a – when you write or share or comment on LinkedIn, your boss sees it, your employees see it, your future business partners see it. So people tend to be much more careful about what they say. It's a very self – it's fascinating to watch how um, self-policing LinkedIn is. When people start – talking about politics, you will see this flood of content, comments beneath what they are writing saying, this isn't Facebook. Please don't put that here. This is LinkedIn. Please talk about business. And this is not any of, this is not the company saying it all. It's, it's right, users. You're not discouraging it. People are yeah, saying exactly. this is not the place for this. Right. Now we have certain rules in place. There are terms of service in the term, and you can say this is not a professional conversation. Please remove it. We also though have, because I think we're an editorial and algorithmic operation, it has largely kept a lot of the fake news out of it. It is very hard to input any kind of fake news into LinkedIn. You can share it, but it won't go wide. You can, first of all, if you share it, you can see exactly who shared it. It is always tied to your identity. So you right. have to be someone who's comfortable saying, I've now shared this fake news that has nothing Although to do with the Although that's not slowing world. it down on Facebook, right? I think it's not because it's not your People are saying identity. awful things on Facebook with their real name attached to it. And I wonder, though, if that changes when you enter the work, when you enter the, what people say at work, 
versus what they say at home is are just there's two different some, things. There's some, they've got some dividing exactly. line in their head, even if they're not even conscious That's about right. it. And some people are conscious about yeah. it. Yeah. So did you guys see a spike in traffic and engagement like a lot of other publishing companies did in the fall? We saw really? a spike in content about the election. Yeah. And a lot of people writing about what they were going to do in a what a Trump administration would mean to business, what it would mean to protecting their workforces, a lot of open letters. I mean, really, open letters had a, had a great year this year. So people were doing politics People there. were doing politics, but again, when you would then see the comments, people saying, why, why am I seeing this on here? And when I would talk to people who were writing and asking whether they should be writing this kind of stuff on LinkedIn, my, my take was always, look, you should write about, if you want to write about policy, that's awesome. That's essential. Write about what the future is of Obamacare or what changes in the Trump administration, how is that going to affect net neutrality? Those are the kind of topics, if you want to geek out on that kind of stuff on LinkedIn, it blows up because you get the right experts weighing in, pushing back and telling you what the right answer maybe should be. If you were just going to say Trump's a terrible guy, Hillary Clinton is a, is a, you know, a cheater and should be in jail, that kind of stuff dies on LinkedIn. What about Hillary Clinton runs a, a child sex ring out of a pizza parlor? No pizza. No, I, you know, no I don't want to jinx myself, but Pizzagate is not uh, – that hashtag is not showing up on LinkedIn. All right. During the commercial break, I'm going to go check LinkedIn and see if we can find some pieces. Yeah, I'm just realizing stories. I probably shouldn't have said that. Now we'll <laughs> find something in the dark. We'll be right uh, back. Reaches. Today's show was brought to you by Capital One. Capital One knows you've got questions about your credit. You may be asking, who's really in charge of my credit score? How does my credit actually work? That's why Capital One created the CreditWise app, so you can check your credit score anytime you want right in the app. And it's free to everyone, Capital One customer or not. In fact, millions of CreditWise users have improved their score by 20 points or more. So download the app for free today. Availability depends on presence of credit history from TransUnion. CreditWise is offered by Capital One Bank, USA, NA. Back here with Dan Roth, whose title I keep forgetting. I just call, I call him the most powerful man in business journalism. He works I love that. LinkedIn. That's, that's my new title. It's executive editor, but I like yours better. I met you because we were fact checkers at Forbes magazine back when there was a Forbes magazine. That was pre- I guess there still is one. Yeah. Long time ago, you had a much more successful career. You you moved up through Fortune and Wired. You were a great writer. You still Thank are you. a great writer. But you did, you had a great career in business journalism. And then and then at one point you were managing fortune.com. You seem like the kind of guy who might be the editor of Fortune magazine at some point. And then you ended up at LinkedIn. How'd you get to LinkedIn? It's a long path, but I'll, I'll, I'll take you back to kind of the beginning of it. Because the, the path looks pretty linear right. up until the LinkedIn part, right? You're, you're moving up various mastheads. You're doing great work. You do great business profiles. You wrote a great Trump story. I'll ask you about that in a minute. And it's a narrow path, right? There's not a lot of people who can rise to the top of these publications, but you were on that track. It was a path that made a lot of sense to me in a certain era. So I, when I got into magazine, when we got into magazine writing, there was a very clear career ladder for magazine journalists. You start as a fact checker, you start writing bigger pieces, you then decide whether you're an editor or whether you're a writer, you pick which path you're going to go on. I used to go back and forth between being a writer and editor. I was at Forbes, and then I went to Fortune. I was at Fortune for eight years. I was a tech editor for a number of years. And then I went fully into writing. I went to Portfolio, helped start Portfolio magazine. Kind of R.I.P. Asked. Portfolio. R.I.P. Portfolio, and that was, and I was there, and then I went to Wired. And as, and I was writing these big feature stories I would do. It was a great job. I'd, have, I'd do four features a year, and they were awesome stories. You wrote and four stories a year? Four stories a year. It was phenomenal. Travel with the guys who were creating. When, when the Kazaa guys were starting Skype, I traveled with them through Europe to see what they were creating. None of us knew what it was going to turn into. 
you know, Shai Gassi, when he was going to launch Better Place, spent all this time with him. And the idea is you'd spend months on these things. You'd wrote – they would be multiple thousands of words. You weren't expected to blog on the right. side. No, that just, was it. Just deliver us four awesome stories. Exactly. And when I was at Wired doing this, the number two at Wired, a guy named Bob Cohn, every single thing we did, he was the kind of soul of the place. And he left to go to theatlantic.com and be the editor of theatlantic.com. And this was in 2007, I think. And at the time, we were just shocked because this is hard to realize now, but that was a demotion. That was a weird step for someone to take. Yeah, the, the websites were still were still to the JV. Right, exactly. And, and I was talking to Bob about it, and Bob was like, this is the future. This is not just the future. This is actually the present. And the door is going to close very shortly for high-level people in the print world to become high-level people in the, in the dot-com world. At some point, there will be enough digital natives that – the print people will no longer right, be able to there make was, that transition. There was a period nearing the end of it now where you'd say, oh, if I really want to up my, my website, I'm going to go hire somebody from the New York Times exactly. or the Atlantic or the New Yorker. And more and more people are saying, well, we don't need to do that. And in fact, that might be a bad idea. That's right. And at this, and I think, Bob, and that was a total eye-opener to me. I was like, of course, that's what's going to happen. I'm reading all my news I'm reading online. These magazines are not going to – this is not the way this the media world is going to look. And Wired, this was during the financial crisis hit, Wired was having cutbacks, and I, I realized that I'm a polar bear. I'm going to be jumping from smaller ice flow to smaller ice flow as a magazine writer. And so Fortune was restarting. It had closed down its website and was restarting it. And um, I talked to Andy Serwer, who was the editor of Fortune, and said, you know, I'd love to come in, be the editor of Fortune.com. I had no digital cred at all, put together a plan, got hired there. And that was a very deliberate move to right. do exactly what Bob had done. Got to get in on this internet exactly. thing. Exactly, <laughs> this internet thing. And while I was so there. That so that all still was, makes sense, right? That you're, still, sense. you're still a guy writing, That's editing right. business. You're still connected to big media companies. Yeah. And now I'm part of the future. Now I'm like, all right, great. This is, I'm digital. Yep. I'm good to go. I've got three kids. I'm going to be able to support them for a while. And then I remember I went out to San Francisco for to go meet with advertisers. You have to go and you know do meet and greets with advertisers and – one of the guys I met with was a our San Francisco um, ad boss took me to a lunch with someone who was in ad tech, and this guy said, "Oh, you know, great to meet with you. Just so you know, like we, we are, I've just put together a way to be able to sell exactly your audience across thousands of different websites." And I'm he's going not to saying this is a threat. No, but it is just, a threat. Yeah, he was just like, "Oh, this is really cool. I can now sell every. I know people come to Fortune, buy Fortune.com because they want to reach." People with 100,000-plus household income who are men in their 30s, and I can do exactly the same thing at a tenth your cost. And he's just kind of right. So he gets, there. To, to, what he's saying is I'm in a business where the plan is to eviscerate your business exactly. and take some of the margin. He doesn't think that's threatening to you because he's not really thinking it through. Right. This he's is just the way, chatting. And this is the way – He's talking to his clients and yeah. he's talking to his investors, but this is we are going to destroy right. traditional media and we're going to suck up their audience. And, it's not and, just traditional media; it was right. it was digital any media kind, too. Any kind of any kind of media where they're spending money and taking time exactly. to develop and create a brand, we're just going to basically suck up all the data right. and leave the brand as sort of a desiccated host. Exactly. Fun. We don't. Yeah. Th- this brand no longer is going to be able to help you sell. And so then, uh, once again, and did I you like, pick up on what he was saying? As he was yeah. saying, I was like, "This is." I think I've made this move because this is – I'm now part of the future. But if the advertisers don't think this is the future, it's not the future. Guess what? You're still a polar bear. you got to keep jumping. Exactly. So then I was um, – at when I was at Fortune, one of the things we were launching was a um, an app for salespeople. It's called the Fortune 500 Plus. And something I developed with Josh Quitner who went to Flipboard. 
and I came out to LinkedIn at one point to talk about using LinkedIn APIs for it. And, and LinkedIn at this point is a job A job network. site, exactly. There's no content there. There was a little bit of – LinkedIn at the time had started to use the Twitter firehose, had access to the Twitter firehose, and now you could – people could bind their Twitter accounts with their LinkedIn accounts, and you would go on there and see what people were tweeting. Yeah. The idea for my app was if you were a salesperson, you're trying to sell to Oracle, you walk in to meet with your Oracle rep, and you can see exactly what he's been tweeting. And you would use your LinkedIn data to help you do that. The And at that meeting, I met Jeff Weiner, the CEO, and I don't know how much longer it was, but a couple of weeks later maybe, he approached me and said, you know, we're going to be pushing much harder into media. And we're going to we, – I, I don't even remember how we phrased it, but it was something like we are going to become a professional publisher. And what happens when someone who's not in the publishing business says we're going to get in the publishing business uh, to you? Do you I, take that seriously? No, I definitely didn't take it seriously. And I really didn't. And Jeff Weiner's a persuasive guy, but you didn't. Very register. persuasive, but it was not a. I, it wasn't even my mindset yet. I wasn't. I hadn't made that move to think what could this even look like. And then I just started sitting with it. And it, and at the time, Fortune was part of CNN Money, and we were having these constant discussions about stuff we wanted to launch, and there were just not enough resources to launch anything. You want to change the website? It took forever, and there were always problems. And it occurred to me that what we were trying to do was – it was a tech game. And we were a media company trying to figure out technology. And here is Jeff Weiner saying we are a tech company trying to figure out media. And that just seemed like a much better bet So to what me. did you need to do to get comfortable, right? Because, I mean, the cynical slash skeptical slash just conservative view of a thing like that is that even if Jeff Weiner means well, they're not in the media business. Right. They don't know what they're doing. Yep. And maybe he really wants to do this and, and he's going to put resources behind it. But also maybe he's going to try it and after six months, it turns out it wasn't a good thing and we're going to transition to something else. We're yeah. going to pivot away. It seems like an incredibly risky jump. It was – I felt like it was a risk. I agree with you. And I think that it, it felt like a risk worth taking. And I figured that, look, I'll go to LinkedIn. I'll learn how a tech company works. And by the way, they're public, right? So it's not like you're getting in That's before right. the exactly. IPO. The IPO like already you're you're going to get a windfall from this. Yeah, it was like a month. It was a month after the IPO, I think this happened. So I was already too late. And um, it looked like I was too late. For the, it wasn't doing it for the money, but it felt like a, I was thinking about my career. And look, I could spend two years. I'll spend two years at LinkedIn, even if this thing's a disaster and it doesn't work out the way I think it's going to, I will have learned how a tech company works, and that will benefit me if I, when I go back in the media. And best case scenario, it works phenomenally, and it lives up to this image that Jeff has for it, and it's going to be amazing. So your thought was, maybe I can jump back. I'm not leaving media. Exactly. I'm still in media, right. and, and if it goes to zero, yeah. I, I can come back, and I can say, by the way, I, I get tech now. Right, and, and I remember having these conversations with Jeff about this and saying, look, if I leave – media, I can't go back. And he was like, he said, why? I said, that's not the way it's not the way it works. When you leave, you're leaving. This is like this is the priesthood. You know, you you don't just leave and come back. And Jeff said, well, that's that's stupid. Why why is that the case? Yeah, he's right. And I was like, oh you're you're right. You why totally, is that the you case? Can totally come of course back. you can go back. Do you want to come back? Right. So um I've told this story before. I think I told it on stage, so I don't think I'm speaking totally out of school. But I went and saw you I think yeah. maybe a year right. into your job there. And you were not happy. It was a hard transition. And you picked up a chart and you showed it to me. It had a bunch of different lines. Right. It was a graph and said, can you read this? And I said, no, I'm a liberal arts major. I have no idea. And he goes, I can't read it either. But everyone else in this company right. knows what this means and they can read it. Yeah. And I'm a writer and everyone else here is not a writer and I can't figure out how to make this work. And it looked like you were going to have to leave. 
So what what happened? How did it, how did it work for you? Thank you for bringing up that very painful moment. Um, I think it's the, a good. It's uh, a it's a what do we call it? A, a learning. A learning moment. Yeah. Do we call it? A learning? Yeah, that's right. There were so many things that changed. One is that I started learning how to speak the language, and I started learning what. I mean, there were. It's the what I thought I was going to learn on LinkedIn has been totally has been true, but I've also learned way beyond that. One example is learning how engineers and product managers think about what they're building. Which is radically different than radically the way different. you, well, at least the way I approach some things and the way you used to approach right. things. How is it different? So as an example, I would go to a, I remember being in a meeting with an engineer one time and we were discussing putting news into, there are various modules when you're on your LinkedIn feed that'll have news in it. And we were, there's always a question of, should an editor be able to rank the content that shows up in this module? And so the question is, there's something, there's breaking news. Should an editor push something to the very top of this module and say, this is breaking? That's literally what an editor is supposed to do is say, yeah. this is important. Exactly. So I'm in this meeting with an engineer and, and I'm presenting this very philosophical argument to him about, look, this is what an editor does. And you put this thing at the top and this is how it works. And, you know, you have to, we know, I can tell you what, what is important and what's not, and this is what people are going to talk about, and this is the thing. We're going back and forth. It's like a half-hour meeting, and about 15 minutes into it, he's like, wait, all I need from you is instructions for how to turn this into an actual product. We weren't even arguing about the philosophical nature. He just needed to understand if he was going to make this into a, into a product, if he was going to code this. Just tell me what the specs look what like. The, what are the specs? And it took a while to realize, all right, this is what, what, what language are we speaking here? Are we talking philosophically? Or are we ta- and there are certain times where you're talking philosophically. And there are other times where you're just saying, if we do this, what are the trade-offs? What happens if we do this and not that? And I think one of the – the other part about being a, a journalist is that everything is important. Anywhere I've worked, LinkedIn, Wired, anywhere, everything is of the utmost importance. Drop everything. You're always on fire. You can't operate like that when you're at a tech company. You have roadmaps, and you have engineers have to work over a certain period of time. And you've got to think, if I build this, how does it affect this other product? And if I ask you to stop working on that so you can build this, how's that going to work? Exactly. Is this – and I remember having I'm, a I'm meeting. I'm starting to run into some of this now. Oh, really? It's fast. Just for little things that seem like, well, obviously, this should get fixed. Right. Because if the thing's broken, and they say, it is, and put, we'll put it in the queue. That's right. And, like, it's a real – challenge to like get it moved up in the queue and explain that process. And there's a method to it, right? There's, yep. a, there's logic behind that, yeah. behind the difficulty in getting that stuff done. Yeah. And that and learning how to prioritize has been something that I think will stay with me forever now. And it's, and it's surprising that it took being in my 40s before I realized how important that was. But you start realizing that not everything – you look at the world differently because you're like, oh, these – before you go through a process like that, you think that you pick up a product and you're like, these idiots, why do they make this thing this way? Once you're actually making the sausage, you realize that there are trade-offs for everything, and you have to figure out what the right trade-offs are. So the discussions I have now are about – we're all on the same page about how media works on LinkedIn. And now it's about what kind of trade-offs are we willing to make to do what we want to do. And did you have to cross some hump within LinkedIn to say, well, this product's working. Now it's doing what it's supposed to. When did that click in? Or was it when, always working? No, it's a great question. We, so we started with something called LinkedIn Today, which was a curation program. And it would just take – if you look on a, on a website and you see an in-share button below a story, it would take the information about who was sharing what and it would, it would share it out. So you would have – we could see that there were people who were in the um, financial services industry reading a particular story and we would say this is great for everyone in financial services. And that was – and it started this as curation play. And that was a tough one because to move the metrics, to make a better, better curation, people don't totally notice if you're 20 percent better than you were yesterday. They only really notice when you mess up. When you give someone who's in financial services, the reader, yeah. 
when you give someone some in their they're in financial services and we give them a story about McDonald's changing their menu, they notice that we messed up. And so that wasn't moving the needle. And then we launched um, original content on LinkedIn, and that's when everything changed for me. Is we launched the influencer program, which was 150 at the time, 150 people. The only 150 people could write content, long form content on LinkedIn. Right. And it changed for me because it was my. This was the first time that someone said, "Hey, Dan, there's your expertise. Go and do this." And then so it became. So the original idea was we're going to be a almost traditional newspaper. We're going to tell you about news stories that are important. And it switched over to we're going to bring interesting people who are going to talk about news, yes. but also things that are not news. Yeah, the original part. Right. Originally, it was just curation. It was just here. Here is what you. It was exactly that. So, but the second one became: What if we become more about views? What if we can take what people know what they see. If we can get Richard Branson explaining what, how he takes the risks he's taking, if we can get him to talk, if we can get Jamie Dimon to talk about why he thinks, you know, this regulation should go away or how he runs his business, that is something that people can't get otherwise. And professionals will gain from having heard this. So that took a couple of years for that to click in. This came from my boss, Ryan Roslansky, who's a head of consumer product, had an idea of doing this. And it was about a year into being at LinkedIn, a little bit over a year. Was there anything the LinkedIn guys wanted to do that made sense in their orderly engineer brain? And you said, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. I can't think of any time that there was something that was so out of whack. I mean, I think that, you know, there, I'll give you one, I'll give you one example is that there are, in the early days, we'd have frequent talks about the value of press releases. And you would have engineers saying, well, we're looking at, you know, PR wire, business wire, and this content, this is clearly about this company, so this should go at the top. And you would have to have, I'd have conversations with them, and my team would have conversations saying, there's a value in press releases, but it's not news. Don't mistake this with news. This is a company giving It's not that we shouldn't have it. Yeah. We should just know but what it is. But you can't put it, you don't want to like put this thing, if you put this at the top of someone's feed and say, this is the most important thing going on about a company, you're making a big mistake. And there, and that was an education. What do you mean by that? I mean, they just hadn't. It, it's not that there were there was any kind of ill will. It was just had no yeah. one thinks this way. Why? I know this is not your thing, but why do you think it took them so long to figure out that shoving email after email after email in my inbox about someone in my network was negative was a bad idea? It took them years to to come around to that. LinkedIn was famously spammy, right? And now it's not, right? So they changed it. I think that there was a this is but it's before my time when uh -huh. this was happening but my understanding is that there, when you're in a growth phase and you're thinking like a growth like growth hackers there are certain things you do to grow the company email was a phenomenally successful way to grow the company there were negative implications of sending people that much email. But there was still a bar going up into the right or a line going up into the right. Well, at some points there was an, and and I think Jeff completely owned this that we, this is not a great experience, and we have to be about having. If, if we don't, if people don't have a great experience, they're not going to come back. And so, there's been a concerted effort to remove email as a. You know, you don't you don't hear people, you don't hear the late night comedians making the email jokes about LinkedIn anymore. Yeah, that's the metric that we, that we measure. You yeah, know? so it's that's a really good thing. Maybe they'll make new. Well, they they are going to make new Microsoft yeah, they make, jokes, yeah, exactly. right? But we'll figure out what those are. You're actually pals with one of those comedians, with Seth Meyers. With Seth Meyers. Yeah, we went to college together. It's a cool group, right? It's you, Seth, Mike Pete, Lazaro. Mike Lazaro. Pete Gross, you know Pete? He's no, in the Sonic ads. He was, he, did you ever watch Veep? Yeah. He's the oil lobbyist. Sydney. Um, oh, yeah, he's great. Uh, so we were all we all went to college together. And so Mike becomes an entrepreneur. Right. Seth becomes a comedian. You become a LinkedIn guy. Do they give you shit about that? 
You know, I, first of all, Mike writes for LinkedIn, so there is a he does uh, your he content, great he stuff. Give you shit. Exactly. And uh, Seth, when I was at Portfolio, Seth used to do the back page of Portfolio, like funny things. This is before he became, you know, as big as he is now. He wouldn't do it now. No, I think these guys, they probably do behind my back. Yeah. But, you know, to my face, they realize they, they don't mess with the three Cs. Oh, they know no, I'm going to drop no, the three real Cs friends, on them. Real friends tease you in front right. of your face. That's, that's how that works. <laughs> so I was looking at your Trump article yeah. from 2004. It's a big, long feature piece on Trump. It's, it's great because it really holds up well. It's, it's well-written, obviously, because you wrote it. But it gives you a good sense of his personality in that he's blowhardy and blustery and, and nimble with facts. I'm sorry, that's the wrong way of putting it. Lies a lot but may not even be aware that he's lying. It certainly doesn't have the sense of menace that a lot of people feel about Donald Trump, myself included yeah. now. So you spent some time with him to do that a piece like that, right? You're on the plane with him. You're right. hanging out with him. Do you get – and now you probably have not hanging out with him. But do you get a sense that his personality has changed since 2004 when you wrote that piece? I actually get the opposite take, which is that it is – I think this – when I see him talking, it is exactly the same. He's the he same guy. like the same guy, yeah. Just on a much bigger stage. It's before he's he's doing things like calling up a supplier for one of his right. buildings and yelling at him. It's sort of as a show for you guys. Exactly. In the it was clearly he was like putting on a show the putting, entire time. And now it's just a different audience. So and much. It's exactly. the entire world. He knows how to read a room incredibly well. But he's also, um, when we were doing the story, he was very focused on this idea that I would treat him, that I would realize that he was a big, that he was successful as a business person. I went and this story was. 2004 is right. The Apprentice has become the biggest show in America. We want to do a piece on is he, what is he like as a business person? And here was this guy who was incredibly successful, clearly very successful. And he went out of his way to try to make sure that I, the reporter, realized he was successful, showing me clip after clip about articles written about his, his golf courses. And it just, I'd never been in an experience where someone had tried so baldly to let me know that they were important and other people thought they were successful. And you've interviewed lots of big, bold-faced names, none, none that, that seemed that needy. Do you remember, um, did you deal with him on the, the rich list at, at Forbes? Who? Oh, Trump? Trump, yeah. No, no, I would just hear the stories when you call Pete Newcomb and yeah, so complain that we were undervaluing him. It was this whole ritual he would do, that he would call up the guy who ran the world's, or the richest 400 Americans. Right. And they would have a back and forth that went on for months. It would involve, like, Trump would take him out and give him the helicopter tour and show him around the properties. A lot of the things were not properties. They were like patches of dirt. Right. He would say, that's worth $2 billion. And we'd go back and forth. And basically in the end, I think Trump would say, well, I'm worth $6 billion. And Forbes would just sort of shrug and go, it's three. Right. And then leave it there. Yeah, you give him a haircut every year. But so your piece, when you wrote about it, I mean, you have a skeptical take at the time, like, well, maybe he's not worth as much, and maybe he's, his, his, maybe some of his businesses aren't going to work as well. But it's still largely positive about it. Yeah, I mean, the feeling was, I mean, you got to remember, he was just, I was, in the end, when you stripped everything back, he was a reality TV host with some hotel properties and some and some golf courses. There was nothing super negative to say. It right. was, here, here's a guy, he's like, he's having fun doing this, and he's fun to watch. And, and the last line is like him sort of shrugging more. and going, I'm just a fucking businessman. Right, exactly. Uh, and what was his reaction to the piece? He, I saw him about a month later, and he said, and he used to call me every day during when I was working on this story. And then the call stopped. As and he would as call as himself. He wasn't calling as his fake publicist. I never got that. And yeah. I call. In fact, the first time when I pitched the story, I got his assistant. And I said, you know, damn it off. I'm from Fortune. I'm interested in doing a story on Donald Trump. And I assumed I would get his PR person. Second later, damn, this Donald. So he <laughs> – and so he didn't give – there was no fake person in there. And then – so I saw him about a month later and he said he thought the story was somewhat fair. 
That's high praise for me, yeah, right? So, did he give was, you? Did he, he famously does the thing with like the silver sharpie? And got rim, none of that. None of that. None of that. Was he on the cover? He was on the cover. So there you go. Yeah, he's probably just happy he was on the cover. He wouldn't talk to me until he said when I pitched the story to him, he said he wasn't going to talk to me. And then, and I said, that's fine. You know, I'm going to do the story anyways, and I hope that you'll talk to me for the fact checking at least. Oh, and by the way, there's a cover story. And then he said, oh, you know, I'm flying to L.A. tomorrow. Why don't you fly with me? So that was like <laughs> within half a second, suddenly all, all doors opened. So do you, I mean, so in, in, that, in that story, he doesn't use a computer. The computer is un, like, right. it's not plugged in. Right. It's in the side. I think it's still the case. But you've been able to get Richard Branson and Bill Gates. When you're an online publication and you're an online publication that's part of LinkedIn, do you still find that there's a difficulty getting – a certain kind of CEO to engage with you, or do most of them now get what it is? It has gotten easier and easier to do, and people just get it now. And so, a example, Indra Nooyi, just interviewed Indra Nooyi about, I don't know, a month ago, uh, the CEO of Pepsi. And Pepsi was releasing their second 10-year plan, and she wanted to release it on LinkedIn. Howard Schultz, when he wanted to announce that he was going to be giving free college educations to all Starbucks baristas, we got the call f- saying Howard wants to, to debut this on LinkedIn because they know they can reach ma- the right and, the, and a massive audience. And then for, in, th- in both those cases, I went and did interviews with both those people to talk about what they were right, doing. Right, and you do these whole package things now where you'll write exactly. stories about them and there's yeah. video and they, they like We all have that. them write, they put the video at the top of it, and then all the comments start coming in. And, um, and part of this is when we go to them and say, look, this is – you have to understand there are no – we're not going to tell you what the questions are in advance – this, this is actual is, journalism. This is real journalism going on. I'm going to come and ask you, here are the topics I probably want to cover, but we're going to come in and talk about whatever's going on in the world, and you can you know, engage with it or not. And do you think there's an audience within LinkedIn for the four, six, ten thousand 10,000-word piece that you used to do at Wired, at, at Fortune? Do you have an itch to do that? I think there is. There might be. I do not have an itch to do that. You're done. I really love what I'm I, – you know what? Those pieces took – they take a long time. It's – and – there's so many more. I mean, my, there are so much more. I, I don't think I have the – I think my system is now operating at a totally different speed. I don't think I could do that kind of sit back and spend a lot of time. I remember talking to you. I was working for Henry Blodgett. It was yeah. then Silicon Alley Insider, and you thought you might want to write about it. Right. At Wired, right? And it took months just to, like, get the pitch through. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God. It's I can't cr- believe – and I, that used to be life for me too. Like, you have to get approval from various people. And, yes, you may now go do the piece, and that's going to take X number of weeks – I can't imagine that world anymore. It still exists. Yeah, no, but it's great. That was, and then, and at the time, it was you, Henry, and Dan Fromer, who's yeah. now the editor of, of Recode. Now my boss. And your boss. We just shuffled the art chart and I report to Dan. That's crazy. It wow. is crazy. He used to report to you, right? At that point, was he reporting to you or, you, or were you peers or colleagues, I guess? I think he probably reported to me. That's I, amazing. I don't think I was managing, but yeah. Yeah, and that story was a, um, a very early story, and BI was just, was really getting started at that point. You guys had kind of just changed your name from Alley Insider to Business Insider. You were out of the out of I the think, loading dock. Yeah, but you were still sharing space with other Kevin. We were we kept getting pushed aside by Guilt Group, right. which was going to be the big <laughs> company. Right. Things change. So I think that those kind of stories do well on LinkedIn. I don't ha- particularly have a desire to do those kind of stories anymore, but I love promoting them, and we make a very big deal. The editors, when they are promoting stories, and there are various different ways those pr- stories show up on LinkedIn. Those kind of long form big business features get a lot of love. So we've been talking about stories. That's what people are submitting to you. There's yeah. a big push in media to go figure out video, yeah. primarily from companies that make that want to get some of that advertising exactly. money. 
seems like you like you do a little bit of video like you just talked about like you'll go film something with with uh, Howard Schultz are you intentionally not doing much video because there's not an ad business there for you I think that video I think we can be a little bit more um, thoughtful in how we go after video because it is not an ad play and so it's just an engagement play what is if if the professional world wants to engage wants to get their ideas from video we should be doing video if they want to shoot video and put it up there we should be doing video but You've seen a lot of publishers who go after video purely because of the higher CPMs, and you do stuff that's not in the service of your readers. If people aren't watching it, what's the point in doing it? So yes, we want to do video, and we're doing video, but there is – and video shows up on LinkedIn, but not in a way that is just trying to go after – it's not a gold rush. Right. It seems like there's probably a play for right, like get the lessons or exactly. testimonials so. or – but you're going to figure that out on your own time. There's not a rush for it. Yeah, I mean, we have a studio in, so there is, members are sharing videos all the time. Publishers share videos. The editorial team shoots videos. We do about three videos a day at this point. We do a daily news wrap-up every morning. We do our daily news kind of agenda setter every morning. We have people in the studio all the time. Like Spencer Raskoff just came by and we talked about his latest quarterly earnings and we talk about lessons for real estate agents. And then there's Linda, or LinkedIn Learning as it's called now. So you've got courses, full courses. If you want to learn how to program you know, Java or use Photoshop, you can take courses on that. So there's all kinds of video all around LinkedIn, but chasing this one sort of news video is not a core part of that who we you, are now. That puts you in a very rare place right now since everyone else is chasing it. Right. Are you chasing it? Um, not me personally. All right. But we just hired Gavin Purcell from NBC. Oh, wow. To be Jimmy Fallon's guy. Yeah, sure. So he's, he's the Follow guy who's going to figure it out for Vox Media. Awesome. So that's pretty cool. That's very We're cool. We're all excited about that. But yeah, I, I do audio. I love that's, audio. That's I think audio is the way to go. Me too. And this was a fun interview. Good. Well, Peter, thank you very much. I appreciate Thanks you having me. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Digital Media for making all of this possible. They're the ones who distribute it to you for free on iTunes and SoundCloud and Google Play. If you like this, and I hope you did, you can find more of it from Kara Swisher, who does the Recode Decode podcast. Lauren Good does the Too Embarrassed to Ask podcast. There's a whole Recode Replay section where you can find audio from our conferences, which are expensive, but the audio is free, so you can go listen to that. Speaking of cool conferences, I'm doing one in February. You should join me there. We're going to have people from BuzzFeed, Eddie Q from Apple, uh, Roy Price, who runs video for Amazon. You've been on stage at one of these. Yeah. Endorse the it's conference, amazing. please. Oh, my God. It's an incredible conference. I still, I'm not paying you to do this. I have met people that I still keep in touch with from just being in the halls of that conference afterwards and getting drinks. There are people I never would have met before that I now talk to all the time for ideas and getting them to write on LinkedIn. It was invaluable to me. Wow. I'm going to move this to the front of the podcast so people can hear <laughs> this. That is not a paid endorsement. That is not. Thanks for coming, Dan. Thanks, Thanks. to you guys for listening. <laughs>